Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes depictions of body horror and discussions of torture, sexual violence, childhood sexual trauma, suicidal ideation, human trafficking, and violence against minors. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Jung Wei didn't know what to expect for his first night on the job. Visitors weren't allowed on the premises after sundown. But he was going to patrol his tiny part of the sprawling historic grounds from dusk until dawn. The Forbidden City was too large a space for guards to work in pairs, so he was left to fend for himself on a night so cold even the shadows seemed to shiver. A bright white light shone from the Imperial Garden. It moved towards him, slowly. It was probably another guard. Zheng Wei worried. Had he strayed from his assigned route in the dark? But the light didn't come from a torch. It was far too bright and far too large. There was something stretching from near the top, like large tendrils floating in the breeze. As he drew closer, he realized the tendrils were the hair of a woman standing at the center of the garden. She was turned away from him, looking up at the moon's eerie glow. Zheng Wei rubbed his eyes, but the woman remained, her white robe shimmering like the stars. He walked towards her slowly. Her head lifted slightly. He could feel an iciness radiating off of her. His free hand reached for his walkie-talkie, but only got static in reply. She asked for help, still gazing up at the moon. Zheng Wei reassured her that he would do whatever he could. She turned to thank him. At this sight, his blood ran cold. She had no face. Welcome to Haunted Places, a podcast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Haunted Places free on Spotify, just open the app and type Haunted Places in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to China's Forbidden City, a storied imperial palace with over 500 years of intrigue, scandal, and death in its history. And discover why, to this day, it's haunted. From 1420 to 1912, the Forbidden City in Beijing, China, was the seat of some of the most powerful rulers in the world, Construction began in 1406 under the Ming Dynasty, and it took 14 years to finish the initial walls. 
By the fall of the Qing Dynasty in 1912, the complex included 980 buildings spread over 180 acres. The historical Mandarin Chinese name for the Forbidden City, Zijingcheng, is actually three separate characters. The first, Zi, is perhaps the hardest to explain. It's sometimes translated as purple, and sometimes Polaris, as in the North Star. Both concepts invoke celestial nobility, a birthright of the Emperor of Imperial China. The second, Jin, is the forbidden in Forbidden City. The idea that the massive palace was just that, a city-sized palace exclusive to all, but the royal family, their staff, and major government officials. Cheng is simply a walled fortress. While the Forbidden City is its original name, modern citizens of Beijing simply call it Gugong, or the Old Palace. Designed by Xiang, the Forbidden City is an architectural and engineering marvel, the largest collection of preserved ancient wooden structures in the world. Nearly every roof in the Forbidden City is covered in yellow tile, the color most associated with Chinese imperial power. Only the homes of the princes and the complex's library are an exception. Their heirs' roofs are covered in a deep green to encourage growth, while the library is covered in black tile to invoke water, a 15th century wish for fire prevention. The Forbidden City wasn't just a home to the members of ruling dynasties. It was also a governing seat, the site of the country's civil service exam, and the depository of nearly all of its records. In an empire's largest China, bringing future bureaucrats to the seat of imperial power allowed them to see the overwhelming power of their occupiers, even if they were stationed in the far reaches of the empire. But the most storied section of the complex was the inner court, the home of the emperor, empress, and their families. The emperor's residence, the Palace of Heavenly Purity, was where he was reported to see his concubines. To serve in the emperor's household in any capacity was a position of honor, but the role of the concubine was a double-edged sword. Delivering the emperor as first male heir could land a woman the role of dowager empress after his death, but the odds of that happening were slim. Some emperors were reported to keep thousands of women in sexual slavery. Concubines and the eunuchs who monitored them were essentially disposable. Ning had never wanted to be a concubine. She hated all of it. The vying for attention against hundreds of other women, the cruel and possessive gazes of the eunuchs, the sense that she was nothing more than an object for Emperor Jajing's pleasure, it all weighed heavily on her. She was a woman of means, not a plaything. But every woman here was a woman of means. They'd all been trained to play their roles, and all of them endured this humiliation with the grace and stoicism demanded of them. The concubines rarely discussed their discomfort. Under the watchful eyes of the guards and eunuchs, a slip of the tongue could result in a swift execution. But she saw the strain of her fellow consorts, the way their eyes dimmed as the guard announced their name as the emperor's companion for the night. Their shivers as they were stripped bare and wrapped in a quilt to be carried to his chambers. The rigidness of their backs when they returned. While some women truly relished their role, many others were just enduring. Ning was learning to endure bit by bit. 
To her great discomfort, the emperor had begun to favor her, giving her a new title, just below his most beloved concubine, Consort Duan, and the empress herself. Ning did not want more attention or more responsibility, and her newfound popularity exposed her to the one thing she could not endure. One night, as she waited for the eunuchs to come collect her, she saw a little girl, no more than eleven, come down the corridor. Her eyes were hollow, and she was deathly pale. She floated down the hallway like a specter, holding the hand of an equally glassy-eyed lady-in-waiting. This was no princess, no kitchen maid. Hours later, after her time with the emperor, Ning still couldn't forget the sight. Her body jostled from side to side in the eunuch's arms as she was carried back from the palace of heavenly purity, but she could not drive the little girl's eyes from her mind. She asked if one of the emperor's children was ill. The eunuch assured her that everything was all right. She had probably only seen one of the girls who had been used for the emperor's medicine. Ning shuddered at the horrors the emperor was inflicting, not just on his concubines, but now on children, using their bodies, stealing their blood. For the first time since she'd entered the Forbidden City, Ning had found something that mattered to her more than staying alive. She had to help the little girl. She had to help all of them. But she could not do it alone. She looked for those concubines and servants who smiled too tightly, who held themselves like a concealed blade growing dull under too many watchful eyes. And in the quiet corners of the night, she approached them. In the end, she had 15 women on her side. They waited for night to fall, then crept out of their quarters, Moving like shadows, the women crept across stone walkways and dimly lit hallways. Ning wasn't used to the silence. Every slight brush of her slippers set her teeth on edge. It was a short walk to the emperor's pavilion. She had never seen the path on the floor before, but she only had to look up to find her way. She stared at the ornate ceiling as they carried her day after day painted panels in blue, green, and gold, far more intricate than any fabric she'd ever seen. It was a simple matter to follow the changing patterns, to retrace the steps of the eunuchs who bound and carried her like a gift to the place she so hated. There were guards by the emperor's gate. Ning gestured for the other women to wait. She pulled her hair out of its elaborate style, letting the smooth black strands fall down her back. Ning slid her two long, sharp hairpins into the silk folds of her outfit. In a different world, she would have given one of these pins to her future husband, a pledge of their love that he would return on their wedding day, forever bound together. But it was not to be. The emperor had offered her no vow, and she would not have accepted. She stepped out into the guard's view, serene smile on her painted lips. The guards looked at each other, puzzled. They told her the emperor had already chosen Consort Duan for the night, but they were willing to turn an eye away from Ning's disobedience, just this once. She was a favorite after all. Ning bowed her head in deference. She turned to leave, then slipped one of the hairpins out of her clothes. In a whirl of movement, she spun back around and stabbed one of the guards in the throat. She pulled it out, a wet, 
gurgle rattling from the small hole in his throat. Splattered blood covered Ning's face. Bright, beautiful, red. A lucky color. The other women followed her, pulling their hairpins out and jabbing the other guard with them. Soon, both guards were lying motionless on the stone. The women dragged the bodies out of view and crept through the door, just as another patrolman rounded the corner. The Emperor's chambers were impenetrably dark when the women entered, their vastness evoking a great cavern. Ning waited for her eyes to adjust. She saw two sleeping lumps in the bed, a trail of discarded clothes to the side. Her mind raced. They had seen no one return to the concubine's quarters, which must mean... Consar Duan lunged from the darkness, hurtling towards Ning. Ning stepped to the side as the other women descended on the Emperor's favorite consort, trying to hold her back. Their hands clamped over her mouth, stifling her startled yell. Ning's eyes slid to the Emperor. He was sleeping peacefully. Ning whispered to the other women to carry Consort Duan away. She could be reasoned with, but they had to accomplish their mission first. Four of the women were required to carry Duan towards the Empress's quarters. They shut the door behind them. Ning turned back towards the Emperor's bed, but he was gone. She and the other 11 women searched the room. He couldn't have gotten far. But there were too many shapes in the dark, and the women were scattered about, making it harder to spot if he was hiding among them. Ning told the other women to block the door. He must not escape, and he must not be rescued. Ning caught a flash of movement near a silk hanging. She approached slowly. Someone was breathing on the other side of it. Ning silently slid a silken cord off a chair. She ripped the hanging from the wall to reveal the Emperor. Ning quickly looped the cord around his neck, stifling his cries, then pulled with all her strength. He fought back, one of his hands striking the side of her face. But the blow was nothing compared to everything else she'd experienced. This was her only chance. The Emperor struggled to his full height and tried to toss her to the side. Ning gripped the cord tighter, her toes searching for purchase below her. The Emperor wheezed, his hands going to the cord this time. She smiled as her heart thudded in her chest. But then she realized it wasn't her heart. It was the door thudding open. The guards were coming. Ning hadn't realized it would take this long. She leaned to the side, studying what she could of his face. He was turning a faint shade of blue. His breath had quieted. But it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. Ning let go of the silk cord. The Emperor reeled around, slamming her into a blood-red column. His hands moved to her throat. Ning tried to brace herself, but he was stronger than her, stronger than she had ever imagined. He yelled at her, his rancid breath hitting her face in waves. Ning's hands went to her outfit, desperately searching for her last chance. She swung her hand forward quickly. The guards grabbed her, pulling her hands back, even as she gripped the sharp hairpin for dear life. She heard sinew rip and tear as she drew the sharp implement away with her. 
Someone was screaming as a soft white orb slid down the pin and into her grasping hand. Judging's eye was hers. It was far better than any vow. Even as she was tied up in the square for the death by a thousand cuts, Ning smiled. Judging would never be able to look at his women the same way again. Ming Shizong, also known as the Judging Emperor, ruled China from 1521 to 1567. Shizong was known for his interest in alchemy, and legend has it he believed that he could extend his life through the consumption of red lead, a concoction made from the menstrual blood of virgins. Many girls between the ages of 13 and 14 were kept in the Forbidden City for this purpose. In November 1542, a group of 16 women, led by Imperial Concubine Ning, stole into the quarters of the judging emperor's favorite concubine, Consort Duan, with the intention of killing the emperor. They were able to strangle him to unconsciousness, and legend has it, he lost an eye in the attack. One of the conspirators panicked and ran to Empress Fang, who led the palace guards and eunuchs to rescue the emperor. Emperor Shizong was in a coma for several hours, during which Empress Fong ordered the execution of all the conspirators, including the woman who had run to her. Though all the evidence suggested that Consort Duan hadn't been in her quarters during the attack, the Empress ordered her death as well. Duan, Ning, and the 14 other women were sentenced to Lingxia, otherwise known as Death by a Thousand Cuts, they were tied up in the square, blinded, then systematically mutilated in a slow process of stabs and amputations. This execution method was reserved for the worst criminal offenders as a means of both public humiliation and spiritual torment, as the practice prevented the victim from being spiritually whole after death. The assassination attempt, which would later be known as the Palace Women's Uprising, did not stop the emperor's experiments with red lead. In 1547, 300 more preteen girls were brought into the Forbidden City to continue the emperor's studies. In 1552, the age limit for the selected girls was lowered to age eight. Many of the Forbidden City's gatekeepers and night guardsmen have reported apparitions of concubines ever since the complex was converted to a museum in 1925. The explanations for these visions vary wildly, from an imbalance of negative chi in the palace to hungry ghosts or spirits that are prevented from entering the cycle of reincarnation thanks to the violence of their deaths, such as the death by a thousand cuts. Whatever the cause, it appears that the Ling Che worked. Ning and her conspirators are unable to escape the walls of the Forbidden City, even in death. Up next, we meet another victim of palace intrigue and discover that, within the walls of the Forbidden City, even court favor may not be enough to save you. Now back to the story. It is perhaps easier to imagine the Forbidden City as an artifact of a far-removed past, 
but it has played a part in major historical events well into the 20th century, and no figure was a bigger player in turn-of-the-century Chinese politics than the Dowager Empress Shisi. She was the third and last ruling empress in Imperial China's history, and arguably its most powerful. Shisi was selected as a concubine for Emperor Jin Feng at the age of 16, and delivered his only son in 1856. When Jin Feng died in 1861, Shizi's six-year-old son became Emperor Tongza. Shizi served as regent for over 10 years before her son took the throne. Sadly, he died of either smallpox or syphilis two years later. Shizi again served as regent for her four-year-old nephew who would become the Emperor Guangxu. She wielded power and influence over the dragon throne for over 47 years, until her death in 1908. Her son, nephew, and her grandnephew rose and fell due to her will and political acumen. She had no patience for insubordination, especially from a woman who reminded her a little too much of herself. The tips of Junfei's fingers were disappearing. Slivers of dull gray bone shined through fragile layers of skin. But that didn't deter her from continuing to claw at the walls of what she was sure would be her tomb. A concubine was supposed to keep her body in excellent shape, but Junfei could no longer remember how long she had been alone, trapped. She was growing to forget her emperor's face. Now, only his voice remained. Guangxu had the most beautiful voice, the softest words, and sharpest mind. But it was his mind that had gotten them into trouble. He had listened to the wrong people and asked the wrong questions, at least according to his aunt, the Dowager Empress Shizi. While Zhan Fei had been happy to discuss Guangxu's misgivings about his own universal power in the face of a changing world, the Dowager Empress saw fit to remind the young emperor that his power stemmed from her alone. She had the ability to take both it and Zheng Fei away from him at any time. And she finally did, confining Zheng Fei in a small garden, like a disobedient animal. The sun burned her skin, and the cold night air chilled her bones. She slept in the dirt. Insects bit at her flesh. She was no longer the pearl of Emperor Guangxu's eye. She was a prisoner behind the walls of the Forbidden City. Guangxu had had two years to come for her. He had not. So she grew thinner and thinner, all the while wondering what Dowager Empress Shizi had in store for her. The door she hadn't seen open fully in years swung forward slowly. Two guards appeared, and for a second, hope blossomed inside her. Perhaps Guangxu had remembered her. Perhaps the Dowager Empress had died, and they could be free. But then the guards grabbed her arms tightly, their hands pressing into her cracked and sunburned skin. She screamed in pain. They didn't even blink. The men dragged her away from the garden. She fought for any sort of traction, the skin of her feet scratching painfully on the stone pavement, something that would give her a chance to fight. 
The world blurred before her as pain ran up and down her nerve endings. They were too rough with her, and she was in no shape to sustain the injuries. They brought her to another courtyard, one with a large well in the center. Her eyes slid from the well to the person standing beside it, the Dowager Empress Shizi. She ducked her head in deference to the other woman. Empress Shizi laughed at her. The coldness of her voice was like shards of glass against Zheng Fei's skin. She found herself flinching, not quite certain what the Empress had in mind. Zheng Fei could hear the smile in the other woman's voice, as she told her that Zheng Fei had finally gotten what she wanted. Guangxu's curiosity may yet be the Qing Dynasty's undoing. In trying to whisper to the revolutionaries through the Forbidden City's walls, he had made a crack so wide that the foreigners could climb through. Unrest in the provinces had emboldened them, and now they were marching on Beijing. For their safety, the royal family would be leaving. Jun Fei didn't know what to say. Was she to go with them? Was Guangxu all right? Where was he? Had he asked for her? Empress Shizi gestured to the well. She told Jun Fei that she had a choice. She could fling herself down the cold stone well, or she could wait for the barbarians to attack and see how she fared amongst them. Her reputation as imperial consort would make her an interesting prize. Jun Fei walked slowly towards the well, peering down to look at its inky depths. It was a short drop. Her death wouldn't be quick or painless. But her death at the hands of the invaders would be far worse. She would be torn apart, her mortal remains made into a trophy. The Emperor's second most important concubine reduced to nothing more than a head on a pike, a spiritual indignity, one that would be preceded by many, many other indignities. She shivered. Zheng Fei turned towards the Dowager Empress and begged for a chance to speak with Emperor Guangxu. She could use her skills in diplomacy to help with the conflict. It didn't have to end this way. The Dowager Empress laughed. The Emperor did not want her. He had forgotten about her long ago. He had cherished far more precious jewels in the last two years. Zheng Fei's legs gave out beneath her. Years. She had spent years in the garden, denied any company or activity, and he hadn't cared. No one had. The guards grabbed her, pulling her back to her feet. The Empress told Zheng Fei that she'd grown tired of her antics long ago. It was time for Zheng Fei to save herself from disgrace. Something snapped in Zheng Fei. A dry laugh left her throat. Shizi was the disgrace. All her plans and manipulations. And now, the Empress was fleeing her own home. The Dowager Empress gave no sign that she'd heard Zheng Fei. She only raised her hand and brought it down. The guards lifted Zheng Fei up and threw her down. She screamed as she fell, trying to clutch the well's stone sides. The jagged rock scraped and bit against her grasping hands. Zheng Fei felt some of her fingers snap, turning black and purple. Something broke beneath her as she hit the stone, 
and then the water. It took a moment for her to realize the ringing in her ears wasn't coming from her, but from bells in and around the city. Alarms silenced one by one, overtaken. She looked up as a series of iron rods slid across the top of the well, locking her in. Junfei pulled herself up slowly, her atrophied muscles shrieking in protest, her fingers going numb, many bending in unnatural directions as she felt along the stone. She found purchase in a small hole. From there, she climbed as best she could. Her arms and legs burned with the effort, but she was determined. She pushed up higher and higher. Freedom was within her grasp. Finally, Jun Fei gripped the iron rod. She screamed again, the pain almost unbearable. Stars danced in front of her eyes. Her body swayed beneath her. Sweat gathered on her palms. She called for help. Around her, she heard the sounds of feet against stone, the slash of swords, the report of gunfire. She screamed again. Nothing happened. Once again, no one cared. Her grip loosened slightly. She flexed her hands, doing her best to hold on. It wasn't enough. Darkness opened up beneath her, and the well swallowed her whole. There's a small fenced-off area set against one of the Forbidden City's bright red walls. To an outsider, it seems to only seal off a bead-shaped stone with a hole too small for anyone to climb through. But an informative sign in both Mandarin and English explains the site's significance. It is the Well of Concubine Jun, the site of the death of Emperor Guangxu's most beloved consort. At the turn of the 20th century, there was great unrest in Imperial China. Both reformers and populists began to speak out against the Chinese monarchy. Dowager Empress Shizhi slowly instituted some moderate reforms to address income and power disparities in the government. But many believed she wasn't going fast enough. The most outspoken member of this camp was her nephew, the Emperor Guangxu. Shizhi had already broken the centuries-old rules of succession to install her nephew on the throne, so she did not take his meetings with the radical reformers lightly. She placed him under house arrest, separating him from Zheng Fei, his favorite consort. The political situation deteriorated, as Shizhi feared. The fractures within the imperial court offered an opening to both the nation's foreign enemies and to Chinese anti-foreign militia, this militia was known as the Boxers to the English-speaking press due to their training in martial arts. The Boxers led a series of riots and attacks on state targets, eventually making their way to Beijing in June 1900. Dowager Empress Shizhi announced her support of the Boxers' cause and encouraged them to expel all foreigners from the capital as she declared war on Japan, Russia, Britain, and the United States all of which launched attacks on Chinese territory. As the British and Americans began to invade Beijing, Dowager Empress Shizhi, Emperor Guangxu, and a small retinue left the city in disguise. The invaders had no orders to seek or follow them, so the Qing royal family escaped. 
But Shizi and Guangxu had left something or someone behind. Accounts differ as to how Zheng Fei, also known as the Pearl Concubine, ended up in the well. Some say she begged Guangxu to stay in the Forbidden City and attempt to negotiate with the invaders, and that Shi Zi ordered eunuchs to toss her into the stone well. The Empress's biographer, Sterling Seagrave, says there's no evidence to support the story, and an alternate version of the tale has the sharp-tongued and stubborn Zhen Fei choosing to stay in the Forbidden City. The Dowager Empress warned her that the invaders would rape her, then suggested that if she wanted to escape disgrace, she must drown herself. So she did. The rumored resting place of the Pearl Concubine is one of the Forbidden City's most popular attractions, so much so that the well had to be sealed and covered with the bead-like stone you can still see today. While the reports of processions of ghostly ladies-in-waiting and eunuchs are common in the Forbidden City, there are two distinctive spirits that bear mentioning when it comes to Zhen Fei and the Dowager Empress Shizi. Both specters are described as faceless women, their visages eternally obscured by their long, dark hair. The first is clad in white, the color of mourning, while the other wears black, a color of neutrality, nobility, and nature. It is unclear whether these ghosts represent either the Pearl Concubine or the Dowager Empress, but it's difficult to shake the dual natures they share, the point and counterpoint we see in light and dark, black and white, yin and yang. Coming up, an encounter with one of the Forbidden City's deadliest haunts. Now, back to the story. Chinese tradition offers several hints for keeping ghosts at bay. Many Chinese homes have high front steps, as it's believed that ghosts have no knees and would be unable to enter the house as a result. Chinese spirits are also reported to be unable to turn corners, which is why it's common to be greeted by a large shrine when you open the door to an older Chinese house, forcing guests to turn a corner to walk around it before entering. These measures are needed as China, like several other East Asian countries, celebrates a hungry ghost festival in Taoist and Buddhist tradition. The 15th night of the seventh month in the Chinese lunar calendar, usually around late August, begins the so-called ghost month, when the veil between heaven, hell, and the world of the living disappears. In China, people are warned not to whistle at night or respond if someone calls their name in the dark. You never know who might be listening or who might be reaching out. Wang felt like he was working in a graveyard. The Guangxu Emperor had died on November 14th in 1908, and the Dowager Empress Shizi had followed the day after. It had been only a month, and rumors swirled that the Dowager Empress herself had arranged for the palace eunuchs to poison her nephew. But that was for men more important than Wang to decide. He was a simple palace guard, and only walked his patrol around the concubine's quarters, far away from the emperor and empress's residences. There was unrest in the provinces, and it often felt as if the remaining members of the royal family were an embattled ship, 
awaiting the last swell that would carry them to the depths. But life continued on. Wong followed his orders and did his best to keep his eyes forward. His wife wouldn't have it any other way. But his priorities shifted when May called his name as he marched past. He turned, and his world was changed forever. She was beautiful, but that wasn't why he felt drawn to her. The story she told him nearly broke his heart. She did not want to be a concubine, she swore to him. The eunuchs and the prince beat her when she resisted their orders and advances. She thought the Forbidden City would change, as the rest of the country did too. But she seemed to be stuck in some ancient nightmare. Wong assured her that he would help her. He spirited her away to his home, just outside the Forbidden City, while his wife, Shi Yulan, was working at the palace library. Mei thanked him profusely, warning him that it was best for her safety and theirs that she stay hidden, even from his wife. He agreed for the moment and returned to work, hoping desperately that no one would ask him about the missing concubine. As luck would have it, no alarm seemed to be raised, at least not when he was on patrol. Greatly relieved, he returned home. But Chiyulan wasn't exactly understanding when she found a gorgeous young woman poring over the books and scrolls she'd so carefully curated. Chiyulan was beside herself. How could her husband be so stupid? Didn't he know how dangerous this was? She begged him to send May back to the palace, or back to her family, anywhere that wasn't their home. But Wong refused. He had promised the girl she would be safe here, and he would keep his promise. The next day, Wong was stopped by a Taoist priest. The priest looked at Wong strangely, insisting Wong had met something evil. Wong was confused, then defensive. He'd met nothing, he replied quickly, and tried to rush away. But the priest caught him by the collar, studying him with a gaze somehow both withering and concerned. Wong was bewitched, the priest told him. Unnerved but not convinced, Wong pulled away and disappeared back into the crowd. As he went, he heard the priest muttering that some people didn't seem to know death even when it smiled at them. As he walked back home, Wong considered the priest's words. May was far too young and beautiful to be a witch. The priest likely just wanted some business. The price of a blessing was going up in these tempestuous times. When he returned home, the door to the library was shut. Puzzled and concerned for May, he looped around the back of the house in hopes of getting in through the window but what he saw as he turned the corner took his breath away. There was a devil in the library. Its hideous deep green face was bent over, saw-like teeth set in concentration. It was painting. Wong dove beneath the windowsill to compose himself, then peeked up to get a closer look. The demon was painting human skin, or at least it appeared to be, pale and glowing, with painted brown eyes and a ruby red mouth. It was both beautiful and horrifying. Wong's breath caught in his throat. 
where was May? Had the creature harmed her? This thought had barely crossed his mind when he got his answer. The green monster lifted the painted skin from the table and put it on, as if it was a robe of the most expensive silk. Bile rose in Wong's throat as the monster stood up, adjusting the skin into a seamless form. The girl who had nearly broken his heart. The creature was May, and May was the creature. He quickly crept out of the garden and back to the temple. He apologized profoundly to the priest, explaining everything that had happened, up to the horrors he had just seen. The priest told him that his hands were tied in many ways. To defeat a demon was to take a life, and as a Buddhist, he could not do that, even if it might save Wong and Shi Yulan. The priest advised Wong to take a fly brush and hang it at the door to his bedroom to protect him and Shi Yulan from harm. He would call upon them later. Wong rushed home to hang the fly brush and pulled Shi Yulan into his arms, telling her everything. He begged her to stay hidden in the bedroom, as he didn't know where the thing that had called itself May might be. Just as Shi Yulan hid beneath the bed, the demon girl appeared in the doorway. She looked up slowly at the flybrush and smiled. Then she laughed. What a silly man to think a priest could frighten her when she already had him so tightly in her grasp. Across the Forbidden City, the priest proceeded to Wong's home, carrying a wooden sword at his side. While he abhorred violence, he saw no harm in carrying an implement with ritual value. It was a spiritual weapon, not an earthly one. No one answered when he knocked, but the door gave way with a small push. The priest moved from room to room, finally reaching the back of the house. A broken flybrush dangled uselessly in the doorway to the bedroom, barely hanging on by a frayed string. Wong lay on the floor. His eyes were open and glassy. Blood and viscera leaked out of his open chest cavity. His heart was gone. But where was she, Yulan? The priest called her name, but there was no answer. He paused, listening. There was something beneath the bed. He approached slowly, wooden sword raised. But when he finally bent down, he found she, Yulan. Her hands still clamped over her mouth, unable to move or speak. The priest was racked by guilt. He'd made a mistake in expecting the demon to leave without a fight. He promised her that he would make this right and headed into the courtyard, demanding that the infernal fiend repair his flybrush. May, the girl May, the pretty, warm, pitiful presence Wong had fallen for, suddenly ran from the house, prostrating herself at the priest's feet. He didn't understand, she said. Shi Yulan had beaten her, had grown jealous of Wang's affection of her, and killed him. And now she wanted to kill Mei, too. The priest didn't blink. He struck her with the wooden sword. The painted skin was knocked askew, like a wet, bloody tablecloth, revealing mottled green skin beneath. 
Enraged, the demon that called itself May ripped off its false skin with its long fingernails, muttering darkly about the beautiful work the priest had ruined. Ruined. It reared up, grunting like a monstrous boar, but the priest struck it again. Its head flopped to the stone with a wet, solid slap. Shiyulan rushed out from the house, relieved beyond words. But the priest held up his hand. Smoke began to hiss from every orifice of the hideous creature, arching towards the sky. The priest removed a drinking gourd from his robes and threw it into the cloud of black smoke. The smoke flew into the gourd as if inhaled by a great dragon. When it had all vanished, the priest corked the gourd. As soon as the vessel was closed, the rumpled skin of the ground stood up on its own, rolling up neatly like a sacred scroll. The priest nodded to Shiyulan that she was safe. She asked him if there was any way she could repay him. The priest told her her safety was enough. He picked up the human scroll and headed for the front gate. When he reached the threshold, he turned back to Shiyulan with a strange smile. Be careful who you trust, he warned. His skin seemed to slide for a moment. Then he was gone. Qing Dynasty era writer Pu Songling began blending traditional Chinese folktales with social criticism in an anthology in 1679. He didn't complete the collection until sometime around 1707, and the book wasn't published until after his death under the title Strange Stories from a Chinese Studio. One of his most popular and frequently adapted tales is known as The Painted Skin, in which a demonic monster in the guise of a young concubine takes advantage of a married man's pity before ripping out his heart. The unfortunate man's wife is able to revive him with the help of a Taoist priest and their town's local madman. It's rare to be alone in the Forbidden City, as it's one of the most popular tourist destinations in China. Guards at the Forbidden City have reported strange after-hours phenomena for decades. With 600 years of history stretched over 9,999 rooms, you're bound to run into a spirit or two. Hopefully, it's just a phantom animal scurrying between buildings, only to disappear into a solid wall, or a weeping woman dressed in white. But those are the tamest options by far. Red is an auspicious color in China, but it's also a convenient shade for the walls of the Forbidden City. At one point or another, nearly every part of the storied palace has been bathed in blood. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. For more information on China's Forbidden City, amongst the many sources we used, we found Paul Raphael's Smithsonian Magazine article, Forbidden No More, and Timothy Brook, Jerome Bergon, and Gregory Blue's interdisciplinary study of both the Chinese legal system and Orientalism, Death by a Thousand Cuts, 
extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places, free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Haunted Places in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy this show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Liebeskind, and Travis Clark. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Richet. I'm Greg Polson.